Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, I am Reverend Dr. Angela Raven Anderson, and I am the host of this segment of Mutuality Matters titled Intersectionality, where race, gender, and religion collide. In this section, we examine how the combination of liberation, womanist, and egalitarian theology present an understanding of God's kingdom that embraces, restores, uplifts, and transforms all who would enter therein. Our view of God's kingdom is greatly stretched and expanded when we seriously consider and learn from the wisdom and research gained in the lived experiences of women of color. So let's listen to their voices as they move us beyond the stained glass ceiling. Our guest for our show today is Dr. Kwok Poulan. She is Dean's Professor of Systematic Theology at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and she is a past president of the American Academy of Religion. Dr. Kwok has authored and edited numerous books on Asian and Asian American feminist theology, biblical interpretation, and post-colonial criticism. Her publications include Postcolonial Politics in Theology, Globalization, Gender, and Peacebuilding, and Postcolonial Imagination and Feminist Theology. She's also uh, published a book entitled Discovering the Bible in, a non, in the Non-Biblical World. She's editor of Women and Christianity in four volumes, and we are delighted to have her on our show today. Dr. Kwok, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Angela. It's my pleasure to appear on this program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Kwok, I know that you are from Hong Kong originally, and so I would invite you to share just a little bit with our our guest uh, about who you are. Yes, I was born in the former British colony of Hong Kong. My parents, uh, they uh, went to Hong Kong after the Second World War uh, because uh, China at that time was very poor. So they were looking for a better life for themselves and their family. So I grew up rather poor in a working class family. And uh, when I was a teenager, believe it or not, I had a woman pastor. The Reverend Jane Wong was later ordained as one of the first women priests in the worldwide Anglican communion. So I was very much encouraged by her. And later, when I told her I wanted to uh, seek further education in theology, she gave me a lot of encouragement. So since 19 years old, I have been studying theology. So. I am in theological education for a very long time. After teaching for some time in Hong Kong, I immigrated to the United States, teaching in Boston, and now I am at Ananta, teaching at Kendra School of Theology. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. I know that that um, 
was probably very rare uh, in Hong Kong at the time that there were that that you had the opportunity to have uh, someone who was female stand before you as pastor. Yes, that is very true. We had women priests in other denominations, but the number was very small. So when I began my theological education and observing that women can exercise leadership roles in church, so I became very excited. Oh, that is that is awesome. That is awesome. We often talk about the importance of um, having those role models and how they influence uh, young women in their decisions to to pursue um, uh, their studies as well as uh, their their desire to themselves uh, step into uh, those roles of leadership, answering God's call to to lead. Um, today, I really wanted us to begin our conversation around a book that you co-authored entitled Occupy Religion, Theology of the Multitude. Now, this is a, a very interesting discussion and perspective I found on um on, on, on religion and, and the lens that we should apply to scripture. So I First, want to uh, ask if you would kind of explain um, how um, this idea, this this idea of theology of the multitude, um, because it was it's very in the book is very much connected to the Occupy movement on Wall Street, which again was kind of a populist uh, uprising of sorts <laughs> um, that. Uh, came about in, um, I guess, about 10, year, 10 years ago, um, where there was kind of this really outcry about the power dynamics that resided in the top 1% of this country. And it really uh, was, a, you know, around the issues of uh, those who were the decision making and policy making that is going on in this, this very wealthy um, uh, and powerful top echelon of our country. So help me um, understand a little bit about how these became connected for you and uh, explaining uh, also a little bit about what is theology of the multitude. Thank you very, very much for this uh, question. Let me share with you. Sometimes uh, people write book uh, with uh, a lot of planning and sometimes it may be accidental. Let me just tell you how I got involved in the Occupy movement. I had a student, Brandon uh, was his name, and then uh, there was Occupied Boston. Okay. So he and other students in my uh, divinity school went to participate in the Occupied Boston and then came back and told us about what happened in those campsites. Then I uh, am a a professor in theology, I thought I needed to know more about what is going on around me. So I went to visit Occupy Boston and became interested in what not only the young people, but what the churches were doing, because there were clergy in Boston who went to the campsite as protest chaplains as well. Oh, okay. And so then together with my uh, colleague, Jan Rieger, we began to say maybe theologians need to talk more about economics. 
uh, given this worldwide occupied movement. So we collaborated on this book, uh, Occupied Religion, Theology of the Multitude. And this was the first book uh, written by theologians on the subject. There were others uh, written uh, on the Bible as well. So in this book, we thought, okay, we title it Occupy Religion. Uh -huh. Because occupy was such a very important term to occupy Wall Street or to occupy public space means to take back, means to assume that we also have participation, if not shared power. It is not just uh, power belonging to the 1%. The origin of the multitude, of course, is a great title, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, because the multitude is not just one group. For example, liberation theology will focus on the poor. Mm -hmm. And then feminist theology will focus on women. Mm -hmm. Multitude is a term for the 99%. So I think in the occupying movement, people were saying, in fact, a lot of us think that we are middle class. We are, in fact, one paycheck from being poor. So the idea of the origin of multitude is when we have popular protest, when we have many people who want to assume they are political and economic subjects, and how can theologians or theology respond? So theology of the multitude should be for many people, the 99%. The 99%, yes, I like that. And um, so it, it, this, this theology of the multitude, it really, um, posits itself really in that same vein though of liberation and womanist theology and feminist theology as as we begin to look at marginalization from an economic perspective yes okay but this uh, economic perspective in the sense with many other things mm. that is in the sense with race in the sense with gender and sexuality as well Yes. But the primary lens will be through economic, because that was the major argument from the occupying movement. Okay. So now um, I, I remember reading that um, this idea of the multitude um, really kind of was lifted even from the biblical text as we look at how Jesus moved in his own ministry and that he was all often ministering to the multitude. You want to expand on that a little bit? Yes, um, because there are two words in the Bible. One is laos. Uh, from that word uh, comes the word laity. The other one is oblos. Oblos means the multitude, the masses. As Jesus traveled in uh, the uh, his ministry, there were multitude of peoples gathering around him. You remember the feeding of the 5,000, right. for example. So it is not just the 12 disciples who moved around with Jesus. They were always the masses. And sometimes the disciples may miss it or did not quite understand Jesus' teaching, while the multitude in, for example, the Gospel of Mark will say they not only supported Jesus, they uh, seemingly, sometimes more than the disciples, understood the message of the gospel. So in this book, The Theology of the Multitude, 
would be saying it's not just those who are called to be disciples or members of the church that needed to respond to the crisis of our time, but we need to hear from the masses, the people who are struggling, who are at the lower echelon of society. Yes, yes, that's that's beautiful. I I love that image because it's so true. And that uh, when we when we do look at the ministry of Jesus, it, it, he is often holding a critique to those who are um, uh, in in power, uh, as we would say, those the religious rulers of the time, as well as even the the uh, the empire being the Roman Empire, as they were occupying um, uh, the, the the country at the time. So um, as we as we look at this and, and we're understanding what are what are some of the tenets that um, as we're thinking through this, how how is this giving us a different image of what we are seeing in this country? I, I was really taken by um, one of the statements made that uh, it, it it is a sin um, that the that all of this power resides in this one percent because it is as though they have um, put themselves in the place of God in um, the and created God in their own image. Um, so I, I thought that was very interesting as a way of understanding um, why this is important for uh, us as believers to begin to understand there is a place for um, our the practicing of our beliefs in these public spaces, right? How uh, the 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 bringing bringing our thoughts, our beliefs into policy, into um, the way that we interact um, in banking, in, in you know in lending, in um, education as as in all of these places, it, even in production, right in the creation of um, of um, products and in services and goods and that kind of thing. So let me ask just a little bit about, um under understanding this this idea how how does the multitude of the of of uh the theology of the multitude how does it speak to the plight of those who are disenfranchised yes many of the christians think that jesus was a spiritual leader leading a primary spiritual movement and had nothing to do with economics or politics, or our social well-being. And I think that if we um, have that kind of uh, point of view, when we look at the Bible, we will see, on the contrary, Jesus cares a lot about the poor mm -hmm. and the oppressed. He fed the hungry, and then he also healed the sick. And many of those people who were considered marginalized or ostracized in society. Jesus befriended them and taught them about the gospel. Mm -hmm. So more and more, we are beginning to see Jesus was not just a spiritual teacher. He certainly was. But Jesus cared a lot about what was going on. And especially, he lived as a colonized person in the Roman Empire. Mm 
we should not forget that that the Jews they lost their countries and then they were dispersed and they lived in diaspora and exile in different parts of the Roman Empire. Jesus healed the sick so many times in the Bible. It was because the Jewish people, they suffered under the yoke of the empire. So they suffered from physical illness and also psychical and emotional stress as well. Not to see the gospel in a more holistic way means that we refused to see the suffering of our world as well. And I have learned from the liberation theologians not to side, take side, is already taking sides because you opted for the status quo. You think that we do not need to change. Many of us have said, well, there is always the rich and the poor. So what is new? What is new is that the disparity between the have and have nots had become so great in recent decades. And you may know that with the pandemic, many of us suffered, cannot go to work, lose income. But the world's 10 wealthiest men actually have their wealth doubled in the pandemic. So their collective wealth increased from 700 billion to 1.5 trillion dollars. Wow. So with that kind of disparity, we need to ask, who is the God that we worship? How can our deepest belief, belief address the economic inequity of that magnitude? So I began to read the Bible anew. The Bible has 3,000 verses that talks about poor poverty or God's solidarity with the poor. So this is not something new, theology of the multitude. This is, in fact, very central to the biblical teaching. Yeah, and you know, um, in your book, you you really talk about this as a life or death situation in our country because we kind of have this... um, very uh, sanitized view of upper class, middle class, lower class. Um, and, and, but we refuse to really kind of acknowledge this caste is almost a caste system. Uh, we, we don't like to say that in this country, but uh, the reality of it is that is true. And as, as, as we are progressing in what is supposed to be a free society, right? A free market society. We are actually seeing the dissolving of a middle-class and becoming more and more of just a two-class economic system. Um, But help me understand, help me understand the role that you really would see the church having in 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 our world today to write this type of uh, phenomenon that's going on in our world, even as you're talking about the pandemic and uh, you know how how we're we we see it in very crystal clear ways. Um, but how how does the how how does the church function to address that? 
Thank you very much for answer for asking that question because I think that is so central. What is the role of the church or faith communities at large? Uh, let me first say that many of our churches they are so steeped in middle class mentality. The middle class mentality. Just about to say, can tell us, talk to us about middle class mentality. Yes, that is. Uh, we think that we are not uh, the super rich. We are not the the poor. And then the middle class uh, usually would uh, want to stay the cold, remain the same, and then to allow them to have uh, upward mobility, to have that kind of security. Middle class also sometimes believe in the work ethic. If I work harder, and then I will move up in the social ladder. And uh, we do not want to have instability or rocking the boat. And so with this kind of um, mentality, you know what the churches have been done uh, in terms of our response to economic uh, inequity? We provide charity. We have those the soup kitchen or during the pandemic, we help those who are less fortunate. These are all good, but this may not solve structural problems. Yes. Let me just um, tell the story of the Samaritan um, again, you recall that there was this person, unfortunately, robbed, you know, and left on the road. Three people came by, only the Samaritan helped. So the church had been doing what the Samaritan had been doing, and that is very good, taking care of the wounded or the suffered. Now, can you then, a bad word, three hours ago, what happened when there were people or the thief or robbers or whatever who were robbing the person? The church may turn to the other side, right? Did not see, okay, we can take care of the wounded, but we did not address structural problems. Yes. Today, many scholars are calling uh, the economic inequity, economic violence. Oh, and then uh, we did not address economic violence and we provide soup kitchen or we provide relief. But we need to look at bigger issues and how we can uh, mobilize ourselves to address structural sin. Sin is not just personal, sin is collective too. And how we can collectively as a, a people of faith address those deep concerns. We are really talking about life and death because part of the um, problem with the pandemic as an Asian American, of course, is the rising number of cases against Asians. And uh, the former President Trump labeled the pandemic as Chinese flu, uh, certainly did not help. And uh, with the rising anti-Asian racism, we are just so um, be, uh, cautious of scapegoating. Mm. When we have economic inequity, we want to then uh, label certain kinds of people as scapegoats and blame them for social ills. That certainly will not help. So I would hope the uh, faith communities will address structural sin and also address the question of racism against 
the brown and yellow and black people. We have seen collective organizing among Asian Americans since the pandemic. And also uh, we recalled numerous protests across the United States and also the world that support Black Lives Matters. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, and that's probably one of the pieces that I love. That's the beauty of this uh, theology of the multitude is that all of us, right? If 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 this multitude of of groups that uh, are negatively impacted by the actions of this powerful um, few. Um, when we come together in uh, voicing and raising the concerns and and working toward real solutions, um, I I just believe that then we can begin to, particularly in in this country, work towards seeing change, real transformative change. Uh, um, it's it's uh, interesting. I. Um, grew up in a tradition who at one point that uh, really uh, um, one expression of that tradition, I should say, really uh, pushed away from uh, being involved in politics, right? That, uh, you know, they adopted this view of as Christians, that, you know, we, this is not, this world is not our home. We, you know, we're, we're so sojourners passing through. Uh, so we, we don't have a place in politics, but I, I believe um, that, that, that is inaccurate. As you say, as, as we're looking at what, Jesus is actually doing when he's walking the earth and he's bringing people back into right relationship, even as he's healing, because those people who are ill are outcast from the community, right? They can't go to worship to the temple because of their ailments. And so his ability to restore them is not just about restoring the physical ailment, or even when he says that, uh, you know, you're saved. It's not merely, and I say merely, it's not only the one dimension of a spirit spiritual uh, restoration, but it is a complete restoration. As you said, it's a holistic, you're being brought back into community. You're being brought back into right fellowship, not only with God, but with one another. And, uh, you know, the story of Zacchaeus and the, the, the making right of a situation where uh, the, the, you know, the one, uh, the victimized individual is not just, you know, Zacchaeus didn't just, I'm just not just returning, but I'm returning over and above um, to to make up for the ways that you've been harmed. Um, let's, I, I, I know that I, I didn't mention that, but it does bring to my mind this idea of reparations in this country. I know it's a, a topic that comes up every now and then kind of like a flash and then it goes away. But I think that there is a, a place in our theology that can support that idea. Do, would you agree with that or no? Yeah, I think that um, we need to emphasize that Jesus stands in the prophetic tradition. The prophets talking about whether it's Jeremiah or Hosea or Ezekiel, they are all heavily involved in criticizing the society and writing the wrong. 
especially uh, the uh, injustice in societies. So I think that we believe in God incarnate among us, sharing with us human form and uh, taking uh, the uh, incarnated human form, participate in human history. And it is also important to recognize that forgiveness is not just cheap grace. Mm. Forgiveness, uh, you need to do something to repent and to restore. Mm -hmm. And that is why today, more and more, we are not just talking about uh, other form of justice, but also restorative justice. Yeah. How justice can be restored. Yeah. Many Native American people have been arguing without uh, taking care of the solidarity that they own certain land or their heritage, that we are not doing restorative justice. Mm -hmm. And Black people have been saying since 1619, right, the project, the 1619 project said that Black people have been enslaved. Yeah. And if we are not recognizing that part of our painful legacy, we are not doing restorative justice. Mm -hmm. And the Asian Americans are saying that we have been uh, ostracized and uh, we have been uh, penalized. The Chinese, uh, they have been excluded in the uh, Immigration uh, Act uh, for a very long time. And uh, so uh, it is important that we find ways to repent our structural sins mm -hmm. and then to uplift things that we can do for restoring justice and so that those marginalized or oppressed, they can have fuller share in the common good. Yeah. So uh, so part of this, I, I know you said this earlier, and is this, you know, when when you're quiet, when you don't say anything, uh, that you you are truly actually participating in the harm that is occurring because there are many who uh, will say, well, it's not my, you know, that's not my issue. It's not my fight. Um, they'll, they, they will choose to, um, be, as you said, be silent. I, I, you know, that was one of Dr. King's criticism of many of the pastors, um, who were, uh, quiet during the civil rights movement during the height of the movement. And uh, he had such a great disappointment in that. And, and I too uh, have struggled probably more than anything else. when we've uh, been talking through racial reconciliation conversations, the, um, the, the unwillingness to step forward and to acknowledge the wrongs uh, of our society that that as if to say as if to admit these things would make our would make us weaker or would um, um, I, I I'm not exactly sure that quite you know there there are many there are many aspects to this right it, it's it's like there's I believe there's a fear of of losing power losing influence but in reality uh 
I, I believe that we all grow when we can share that power. And when um, and there's more than enough. We serve a God of abundance. And um, and and so this fear that there's not enough is, I, I believe, uh, part of what drives the power grab and 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 the continued uh, oppression of, of different groups. Um, so so as we think through. Uh, the real, real practical ways of moving forward. I know, uh, for instance, I, I uh, lead a, a social justice ministry within our church where we're really looking at the systemic issues, not, not just how we do those charitable things, like you said, the soup kitchen, but how do we begin to go in and do the deep dive into un, you know, dismantling and untangling um, those policies, those structures that are in place, how do we come together? What what are some ways that you suggest? Because I think one of the things that becomes frustrating is that you often feel like you're working in a silo. You know, you're just in your little space. But um, how do we begin in your mind? What are ways that we can begin thinking about how we come together as these groups um, to to lift our voices together to to say there there is a better way, there is a more just way for us to live that would allow all of us to 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 have a uh, have a better uh, uh, opportunities. Yes. I remember that uh, Dr. King said, that is, it is not just those who were opposing civil rights movement that would be um, harmful for the movement. It would be also the liberals who did not say anything. Mm-hmm. That and is, when we have power, we choose not to speak. Yes. So today, I think it is important for us to move forward together as a community. Mm-hmm. Why there is a national um, pushback against critical race theory? Yes. It's because people said, if you teach the kids, but nobody really teach critical race theory to right. the uh, uh, high school or primary students anyway. But the argument has been, if you teach those things, you, if you teach, the racial history of the United States is divisive. Mm-hmm. It's as if, if we do not talk about those things, those will go away, which is not true. It's not true. And I think because we talk about intersectionality, that is race, class, um, sexual orientation, all these social um, access intersect. I think it is also a good exercise for us to think about if we are white, how can we be in solidarity with the people of color? Many of us know that in around 2040, there will be no racial majority in the country. And that is why many poor white people, they were afraid that they will lose power. But can we also, using this class analysis, so that well, those rich 1%, they are oppressing all. Right. It's not just the people of color, it is also the poor white people. Can we then join hands together to dream a new possibility? Sometimes with the capitalist society, 
it is as if there is real no alternative. But then, after the Occupy movement, in the 10 years, we have witnessed global protests from Hong Kong, Thailand, Colombia, Chile, and other countries in Africa, that people have been rising up. Mm -hmm. They have not remained silent. And today, I hope in faith communities, we work in our own neighborhood and take concrete steps to address those issues that are affecting our community and see how we can work with people of other faith traditions, people who do not look like us and form coalition and alliances. Yes. History has often been made by just a group of people taking action. Jesus' movement began with a small cloud of people and then it changed the world. We can start from where we are. God puts us in that community and we have to seek the good of the people. Yes. Oh, that's so beautiful. Um, Well, I have absolutely enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, a little bit about, um, and excuse if uh, if I don't really posit this uh, the right way, but I know that you have done so much kind of thought and research in this idea of post-colonialism, right? So help, uh, if you can, in, in <laughs> uh, help us kind of understand what does that mean uh, for us in our understanding of where we are in the world today. Yes, and a um, hundred years ago, and the majority of the world, they were under the colonial powers of mainly uh, European uh, countries and also uh, United States. And then uh, in the 50s and 60s, many of the countries in Africa and Asia regained their political independence. So it is just two generations ago that many people in the world, uh, they became independent. So today, when I talk about post-colonialism, I am talking about how we can decolonize our mind and our practices, both social practices and religious practices. And I belong to the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion. And you have seen the clergy in my church, they wear those clerical um, uh, garb. And then, can you believe it? Those that originated from Northern Europe, colder country, would be um, um, continuing in Asian and African countries, which are so hot, right? <laughs> right. So this is just one uh, dimension. Look at the hymns. We are still singing 19th century hymns written far away in Chinese or in uh, Kenyan language. And so I think that this post-colonial theology is to dissociate ourselves from the colonial syndrome of doing theology and religious practices, modeled after the colonizers, and to then develop our own enculturated practices that will be more relevant and speak to our context. Many theology has been done during the colonial era supporting empire or status quo. So today, uh, our vocation will be whether we are people of color, 
or formally colonized to ask what God is speaking to us and discern the signs for our time. Yes, I love that. I love that. So, and then, so let me ask you that as a, as a Asian American woman living, uh, you know, in the United States in 2022, how is it that you are perceiving that God is moving right now in our world? I think God is always speaking in different ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes God speaks through those who are disfranchised or we do not regard as important. I learned from uh, the work of Masada Alfias Reed, a post-colonial queer theologian. And she said, God speaks to us through the others. The others, they present the revelatory horizon of God because they do not look like us, They do not share our cultures. We have certain prime spots of understanding. But when we embrace the others among us, we have a fuller vision of who God is and who God can be. I just love this idea that is God reveals to us through the others. Awesome. Thank you so very much. And thank you, Dr. Kwok, for being with us today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, And I know that our listeners have. And and I want to say to all of our listeners today, thank you as well for joining today. Um, Please stay tuned for all the brand new episodes that continue to to be published weekly from our incredible team of co-hosts. In the meantime, go to the show notes and learn how you can follow and support the new members of our podcast family. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You can also go to our website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to our blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit our bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will uh, enrich both your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. Well, I am Dr. Angela Raven Anderson, and this has been Intersectionality, where race, gender, and religion collide. Special thank you goes out to Landon, our support tech, and the entire team of CBE International that makes this podcast possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thank you for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.